things. Now, I, I really do like technology. I really like the way that we were able to connect like this, even though we can't be together in person. My siblings and I, and I was telling the guys here, the production team here, my siblings and I, we share a WhatsApp group. And we spend time reminiscing of days gone by, of things and the various mischief that we got up to as kids, as well as catching up with our lives now. Um, and now, one of the things that I'm reminded of as, as I've been going through these things with my family is that we grew up in a little cul-de-sac, so a little dead-end street. And this community that formed in this little dead-end street is something that I'll remember quite well for the, for the rest of my life, you see. In that cul-de-sac, uh, gatherings, street gatherings were commonplace. Having dinner at somebody else's house happened on a regular basis. Um, the effort that was taken by my parents to establish relationships with all the neighbours, as well as the neighbours themselves opening up their homes to all of us on the street, created this culture of community that I remember really fondly. It was the effort that my parents went through and all the other parents went through that enabled us as all the children to get along with as well. So when we moved into the street, the, the core families of the street, so there was us, the Helgs, there were the Highlands, which lived next to us, well, the house across. You had the Lee Hangs, uh, you had the Hogs, you had the Arloys, you had the Salars, which lived down, down, down the road as well. But these core families... We basically lived in each other's homes, and we got to trouble together, we had fireworks wars together, we, we had adventures, we went round and played at our neighbours' houses, we built forts, we went swimming in a creek which was absolutely disgusting and should never be swimming. swimming. Um, but I remember fondly this community, this culture of community that formed really well. And the reason why I begin or take this walk down my memory lane is because today we're looking at our eighth core value at Grace Christian Church. And that is church culture. Church culture. The, the word culture has a very sort of convoluted definition, but I've basically summed it up as this. Culture is the qualities for which a specific group, for example, a family, a team, or a church along those lines, um, a specific group or location, a country, a district, or community, is defined or known by. I'm going to say that again. A, the qualities for which a specific group or location is defined or known by. For example, a family culture defined by love a winning culture defined by a team's success, a toxic culture defined by the tearing down of others, etc., etc. In light of this, what culture do we at GCC have? What steps can we take to bring about a culture that is centred with the, the aroma of heaven? Because our eighth core value states this, church culture, we promote mutual acceptance, cultural relevance, and doctrinal purity. Three things that are necessary and interdependent upon each other as we look to develop a God-honoring and a God-glorifying church culture. 
That's why I've entitled this message today, Church Culture, The Condition or the State of the Church. So let's open a word of prayer and we'll look at the word of God together regarding our church culture. Father, we thank you so much for the culture that you've established through your son, Jesus Christ. That he, as the head of the church, your spirit, that is the power of the church, your word, that is the authority of the church, might be the things and the people to define us. We look into your word, you might open our eyes to see your hand at work. You might open our eyes to recognize our own failings, but also open our eyes to give us the boldness and the courage to repent of our ways and to entrust them to you. Please use me as your mouthpiece today as we look at your scriptures. Please speak to each of our hearts. Please help us to establish a culture that truly does bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we pick, sort of kick off into the passages in the Bible this morning, there are two things that I want to address first. Two points. Firstly, we will bring into the church culture whatever our culture is at home. Whatever our culture is at home, we will bring into the church. For example, if our home culture defines success by our accomplishments or by how much money we earn or by the results that take place or occur, the consequences that happen, then we will bring that same culture into the church. If we have a culture at home that is sarcastic and emphasizes the tearing down of others instead of building up, then we will bring that culture into the church. If we have a culture at home that revolves around entertainment or leisure or apathy toward the things of God, then we in turn will bring that same culture to the church. This expectation of being entertained, this expectation of just having fun, or, or this expectation of just being apathetic toward the things of God will be brought into the church too. The reason I want to start off with that is because strong family units make for a strong church. Having a godly foundation in the home, having a godly culture within the home, having a godly culture that revolves around the things of God and the person of Jesus Christ, well, then that in turn is brought into the church. That's the first thing you need to be aware of. Second thing you need to be aware of is this developing of church culture in a positive sense something that you want to see happen? Is having and promoting a culture in a church that is established and sustained and growing in GCC, is it something that you want to actively take part in building within GCC? Because if you do, then from the get-go, you must ask yourself these questions. Question one, what is it that I'm doing to promote acceptance? Even, even with those that I don't get along with. Question two, how can I be active in making myself relevant to every person within the church that are of different ages, that are different races, that are of different mindsets that within the church? 
And question three, am I living in obedience to the word of God in a way that draws people, even with their differences, as he has lifted it in my life, in, in my home, or even in my church? You see, one of the greatest failings I think we have as people is that we can be super critical of how things are currently done, and complain about how things should be done, but never taking any practical steps in addressing those issues or to contribute in the healing and the restoring and the reviving of brokenness that may have formed, the brokenness in relationships, the brokenness of, of even testimony. You see, the development of a God-glorifying culture requires all of us to play our part in building, developing, and sustaining a culture that is God-honoring within the church. We looked at the fourth, uh, sorry, the fifth core value, which was ministry, and I shared how you didn't need the title to play the part of uh, an apostle or or, or or an evangelist or or a teacher or a pastor. I didn't say that was sort of like every man, woman, and child a minister. So too, in like manner, regarding the establishing of culture, it requires all of us to build a culture upon the Word of God by the Spirit of God that brings God glory. We all have to be able to play a part in this, one that promotes acceptance, one that is culturally relevant, and one that is doctrinally pure. So, with that out of the way, how then do we promote a culture that is mutually accepting, culturally relevant, and doctrinally pure? Let's look at each one of those now. First one, mutually accepting. How do we promote being mutually accepting? Being accepting of others, even in the church of God, can be difficult. Some people don't agree with other people. Some others find it difficult to get along with other people. Some people don't even want to intermingle with other people. It happens in life, and sadly, it actually happens in the church that these little cliques get formed. And the reason such friction like that exists isn't because there's a theology clash, isn't because that there's a, a clash of particular style. Usually it's because there's a clash of personality. I don't like Joe, he's too loud. I don't like this person because they're, they're, they're closed off. I don't like that person because they're introverted. And because of those things, we take a back seat from actually establishing a culture of acceptance because they're too different or they don't meet the standard of which I expect them to actually meet. See, regardless of the friction, my personality clash with another is supposed to be, as Henry put it a couple of weeks ago, superseded by my supernatural identity. My personality takes the back seat to the identity that I have in Christ. And how I am to treat you, regardless of our differences, is how Christ treats me. I am, a, to, I am to accept you as God accepted me in Christ. I am to love you as God loves me in Christ, which is by, evident by his sacrifice. I am to, at the very least, seek to understand you as God understands me through Christ. See, the point is this. We are all sinners saved by grace. And at the very least, the same grace that has been bestowed upon me by Jesus Christ is to be the same grace that I am to display and manifest toward you too. Tim Kimmel does this great series 
on Right Now Media. If you have it on Right Now Media, I encourage you to look at it. It's called The Grace-Filled Marriage. He also has Grace-Filled Parenting and a few other Grace-Filled Discipline, but he has a lot of Grace-Filled, a grace-filled series on Right Now Media. I'd encourage you to have a look at it. Um, but he has this, this running theme, and he brings it out in The Grace-Filled Parenting, and he says, how, how am I supposed to you know, live a life of grace or display grace? It is how God has shown grace to me, I am then to show grace to you. How God has shown grace to me in Christ, I am then to show that same grace to you. Easier said than done, but something we can at least, at the least, pray for and at the most look to live out in each of our lives. That is what's involved in acceptance, the demonstration and execution of grace. Grace by the power of God. You see, Paul's prayer for the church in Rome, which was a, the hub of an empire, it was a metropolis filled with various ways of thought, it had a few different cultures, and various religious ideologies were starting to prop up all over the place. But he says this, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to read to you verses 5 to 7. But he says this, Romans 15, verses 5 to 7. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the key verse, verse 7. Accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I'll read that verse again. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Just as Christ accepted you, we then are to accept each other. I mean, if you look at, at verse 5, when it says this, this attitude of mind towards you, what was the attitude of Jesus Christ? If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, you see the manifestation or the, I guess you could say, the itemization of that attitude in Philippians 2. I'm not going to go there, but I'm gonna just, I've just labeled it. See, Paul clarifies this. There's humility and meekness in chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians. There's willing service of others in chapter 2, verse 6. There's obedience to God's will in chapter 2, verse 7. There is sacrificial giving in chapter 2, verse 8. All of these attitudes, these things is what demonstrated through the person of Christ. He says that is the attitude we are to have as well. Because you'll notice that how in the presence of this attitude, according to verse 5 of Romans 15, there also comes this, this endurance and this encouragement from God too. That as we display this attitude of Christ, he gives us endurance, which implies that it's the long haul. That implies that it's not just a quick fix. That the, the person, there are always going to be people that, that won't get along with us. They're always the people that we don't agree with 100%. But if we're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters nonetheless. We are family nonetheless, which means I am to love you regardless of what I think or regardless of how I feel. And, and you have to love me too. But I'm just saying that that's, that is, that it's a long haul because we're going to spend eternity together. And so endurance, 
of where we grow in love one for another. Yes, you might not get along with me and I might not get along with you, but together we are brothers and sisters in Christ looking at our Saviour who will give us the endurance. And in that endurance, we also find encouragement, encouragement to see God working in their life, encouragement to see God molding and shaping me, encouragement to, as Henry put it, increase our capacity for love. And that's the encouragement. So when that attitude is manifest, we, are, we find that there's this endurance that grows, this perseverance and this encouragement as we behold God working in each circumstance and within each person. And that's why you have this blessing of unity spoken about in verse 6. The joy of having the same mindset that brings glory to God. Uh, in Philippians 2, 2 it says, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. This unity that's there. The joy of speaking words of life as one. As one speaks words of life into the lives of another. In Proverbs 15 verse 4, it's a beautiful verse. It says, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but the perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Which is true. You can crush a person's spirit with sarcastic comment. You can crush a person's heart with something that, that is said brutally. Man, even honestly, but brutally. You can crush a person's heart, but the, the soothing tongue is a tree of life. Once again, all this is done for the glory of God. But here is the major call placed upon us, and that is found in verse 7. The major example given for us and the major purpose given to us in verse 7. Once again, accept one another. That's the call. Accept the word can be translated as to receive. And it carries with it this wonderful idea of being profitable, of being beneficial. Brad, amazing man. As I have befriended Brad and Brad has befriended me, I receive from him in that friendship. I profit from knowing him as a man. It could be physically, he gives me fish. It could be physically, he takes me places. It could be emotionally, as he is an ear that I can listen to, as a shoulder I can rest on, because he's a big guy. But you see how that's that whole, to accept one another means this. It implies having a benefit from them, not for the benefit's sake, but that they're profitable for you. That friendship is profitable for you. That's what happens. This is what accepting one another means. This is the call placed upon us in Jesus Christ. That being a friend with one another isn't a call. Okay, isn't a call to be unwise. It's not just means accept anybody because they said something. It's not a call to be unwise, but or, or blindly welcoming, but rather doing so, doing so because of the major example set for us. What's that major example? Carry on in the verse. Just as Christ accepted you, are we bound to get burned in life? Yes, most probably. Are we bound to be let down by others? For sure. Will there be huge disappointments along the way? In the church? <laughs> Guaranteed. But I am to display that same grace and that same acceptance to others that Christ displays toward me. So that when I have burned him by turning my back on him to sin, that, that when I let him down, by dabbling in things I know I, not should, I shouldn't be dabbling in. 
that when I disappoint him over and over and over again, when I don't share the gospel, when I don't speak up, or when I don't take that stand for holiness, that when I do that, he still accepts me. And that when I confess my sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive that sin. That is how Christ has accepted me at the cost of his life. He's accepted me in all my brokenness and all my failings and all my weaknesses. And in that acceptance, he, he has transformed me. He has changed me. He has molded me to become more like him. And when that is done in the church, it is done for this major purpose in order to bring praise to God that we can Honour God to see the work that he's doing in Brad's life, that he's doing in my life, that he's doing in, in Jono's life, both little and big. Jono. So that, that's what happens, that as we accept one another, as Christ accepted us, then we in turn can bring praise, be united in mind, and bring praise to God. That is fulfilled. See, in a world that is becoming more and more tribal in their mentality, classing people by races or economic statuses or ethnicities, classing people by environmental causes or genders or, or sexual orientations, um, classing people by religious beliefs, where this, this whole room this whole room for disagreement has been narrowed down that when you disagree, it is viewed as being intolerant which is ridiculous. In, in, this, in this world where there's no room being allowed for differences, as the world seems to be prioritizing differences, this aspect of mutual acceptance should be the predominating factor within the church, within the body of Christ, because we have all experienced the greatest example of acceptance by God through Jesus Christ. What does Romans 5.8 say? That God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. Because in John 1.12 it says that, that, that we are given the right to become the sons of God as we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, our grace group leaders have a study every, every couple of weeks, and they've been going through the core values, which has been a great blessing. They've shared with me some of their thoughts discussing the same core value, and they gave some wonderful examples of where this is demonstrated. For example, in John 4, when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, when, in John chapter 3, when he meets Nicodemus as a Pharisee and still able to have a conversation with him, as the tax collectors, when Jesus ate with them in Matthew 9, or, or the woman who put perfume on Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, there are demonstrations of where People were accepted by Christ regardless of their status, regardless of their race, regardless of their social standing, regardless of where they were. And they were accepted by Christ as they humbled themselves before him. And Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 to 28 says, For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. 
neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The predominating factor there is not those differences, but the fact that we are made one in Christ, which is why then we are to be mutually accepting. For as we are mutually accepting, we naturally become, the second one, culturally relevant. Culture, as mentioned earlier, is the qualities which a specific group or location is defined or known by. The word relevant means bearing or connected with the matter at hand. Or in other words, being able to connect with others, specifically the people that you are placed among as the children of God. So when it's stating that we're desiring to be culturally, culturally relevant, then we have to ask, what is the culture we're supposed to have relevance with? Drawing for the example used earlier, whatever culture we've grown up in or surrounded ourselves with in our lives will at some point have a clash with another person's culture. For example, and I don't want to be disrespectful here, in Asian culture, there is a, there is a diligence and a seriousness that's found within Asian culture. The attitude toward hard work and striving for success is, is both positive but also negative. Now, Australian culture, in contrast, the whole she'll be right, carefree, you know, yeah, we'll give it a go, mate. You know, that, that's my Aussie accent. It's terrible, I know, I'm sorry. But you, you, the, sort of, the sort of laid back, kick back, feet up, on the beach, go surfing type mentality, once again, has both their positive and their negative aspects as well. Then there's Polynesian culture, which is sort of like a mishmash of the two. Probably leaning more towards the Australian one. But you know what, you know what I mean? This is when you can start having these, this clash of cultures. So then how does one reach a point of relevance within a church that is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth? When this clash of cultures can so easily arise, this is for us to look at, as quoted as by the leaders, the one thing that is common to us in terms of culture. What is the one thing that is common to us in terms of culture? Firstly is this, that we are unique, but we can take comfort in knowing that we are united in Christ despite our differences. God's word is relevant no matter what culture or time that you're in. God's word, his truth is timeless. His standards transcend culture. His divine culture as shared in his word is eternal. Thus, this is to be the influencing factor of what develops culture within the church. The Word of God, as empowered by the Spirit of God and our relationships with each other, that is to be the culture that defines us. Not the fact that I'm Samoan, not the fact that you're Chinese, not the fact that you're Australian or Filipino or whatever it might be. That is secondary. The culture that is developed has to come from the Word of God, from the heart of God. Well, see, you, you, you look at aunties and uncles, aunties and uncles in our church, that life's different now in the 21st century from when they were our age. 
So when they were youngsters, things were a lot different. Since then, we've had advances in creating opportunities to increase our wealth. Uh, the progressiveness of society seems to be moving forward, not necessarily in a good way. But this still remains the same. For example, we are made in God's image. Doesn't matter what era, what time, and what point of history you're in, we are made in God's image. We are part of His creation. That, that man has sinned against God. That's timeless. That, that sin has condemned us to hell. That's timeless. That God sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin by dying on a cross. That's timeless. That Jesus rose from the dead three days later. That's timeless. That Jesus now ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, ever to make intercession for us who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of sin. That is timeless. The fact that he's coming back one day, that is timeless irrespective of how things have changed, these truths are timeless. It is the divine culture of God's heart, of Jesus' word, of the Spirit's guidance that is to define us. It doesn't mean that we stop being Chinese or stop being Samoan or stop being Australian, but it means that as a redeemed Chinese saint, as a redeemed Samoan saint, as a redeemed Australian saint, I am established firstly in the person of Christ who develops a culture that transcends everything else of this earth, that you are my brother and my sister, regardless of the world says, regardless of that. So when we hear things like this, that the Bible is so old with all the traditions and rules, etc., how do you relate with that? Our response is that the gospel is not contingent on how much your earthly status is or what it is that you have or what, how much popularity you have. Rather, it is the message of loving grace, which is timeless, of merciful forgiveness, which is timeless, and of patient acceptance, which is timeless, that has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and bestowed upon us as we've trusted in him. You see, the real view of culture is what the leaders have shared. The real view of culture is God's view. And perhaps we as his people have strayed from what culture should be as established by Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. To quote the Grace Group leader's thoughts, how do we bring this message to people from different countries and backgrounds? What do we need to be mindful of? And I like this thought that they shared. The listener, the listener's culture, is for them to be sensitive to the topics that are taboo to them. Every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Okay? Um, their understanding of values, love, grace, forgiveness, their experiences and how they deal with things, understanding their values. Actually, on a quick side note, John, Sharp and, John and Betty Sharp have come. Um, they were missionaries in Indonesia for a number of years. But what the New Tribes missionaries did back then, and they still do it now, is they live learning the culture that they are in. 
learning the language. They spend years, before they even get to teaching the gospel, they spend years getting to know the group of people that they're in, the culture and the way they work. I would encourage you to watch on YouTube. They have, uh, it's called The Peace Child. And you watch what goes on there. And that was a culture that valued treachery and betrayal. And so for them, when they heard the gospel message, they saw the hero of the message as Judas, not Jesus. But then God in his grace, because the culture was understood, redeemed that culture as the person there shared with them the wonderful story of Christ. So too for us. We need to be able to listen. See, sometimes, if even if it's just listening, our actions will transcend beyond words, beyond what we can say to people, particularly when vocabulary or our language isn't enough to reach people. And the word for love or grace as shared by the leaders um, in other languages might be different or the interpretation of it might be different. But to be culturally relevant means to put in the side of how you think things should be and rather form the line with how Christ governs and directs us to be instead. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23 says this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. One Peter chapter, sorry, Second Peter chapter one last week was make every effort. This is what Paul is talking about here. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people. I become culturally relevant so that by all possible means, I might have some. I might, sorry, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Then Paul is talking about making every effort to reach out to the lost. That same desire for us being cultural is to make every effort to reach out to those within our church family. To make every effort as a church family to reach out to those outside of our church family. That's what it means to be culturally relevant. And that's what we want to promote within Grace Christian Church. Which then comes down to our final part. To promote being doctrinally pure. Now I'm going to read this from what the leaders said. They said, doctrinal purity, teaching the truth, pure. Complete the uncorrupted word. When the purity of the word of God can be compromised, the likes of the prosperity gospel, diluting any value in the Bible, for example, sex or marriage, gender, or even just things like living together. When the culture of tolerance promotes there being no right or wrong, or the likes of there is no, there is no one God, the word tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and to be aware of false teachers. Mark 7, 1 to 13, talks about upholding traditions more than the word or the heart of what the word is about, and to be cautious of that. Now, this is a great starting point regarding being doctrinally pure. Yes, the word of God, the foundation, the word of God, the authority of the church. 
But being doctrinally pure is more than just the accumulation of Bible verses. The being doctrinally pure is, is more than just quoting such passages in various contexts. Doctrinal purity is more than knowing the ins and outs of various biblical themes, soteriology, eschatology, dispensationalism, predestination, and the like. I see the doctrine of, sorry, I see the purity of doctrine evidenced in how close and in how intimate we become with the Lord Jesus. That's what I see the reality of being doctrinally pure. Because the Pharisees knew the word of God, they knew all the doctrine, but they weren't doctrinally pure because they couldn't see Jesus. There are so many religious leaders of today who are doctrinally pure, yes, but they don't know Jesus. The reality of the doctrine of Christ is evidenced in how much we know him. And how much we know him results in our desire for holiness to grow. The longing to give because he is generous. The willingness to surrender because God's greater plan is valued. We begin with knowledge, yes, but that knowledge is for the purpose of revealing the person of drawing us to him. A pastor by the name of Todd Nibbett says this, the Bible has only one doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ consists of many doctrines which stand together as the doctrine of Christ. All of these doctrines are essential. And if any one of these doctrines are omitted, distorted, or separated, it is no longer the doctrine of Christ. Test all doctrine by two things, by two simple questions. First, who gets the glory, God or man? And second, does doctrine, sorry, does the doctrine lead you and cause you to rest in Christ? For all true doctrine gives glory to God and abases man and directs sinners to Christ to find rest for their souls in him. Doctrinal purity, and I've shared it so many times, is about us being drawn deeper in our relationship to a person. Not to a book of facts, not to a book of knowledge, but to a person. That's where we're aiming that is what we seek to promote, that you and I would know him, that you and I would rely on him, that you and I would get so close to him that when he speaks, we hear, that when he prompts, we move, that when he commands, we respond. That's the doctrinal purity that we're seeking. That's the doctrinal purity that we... And here's what's crazy, is that as we are doctrinally pure and that we are... I guess you could say, directed closer in our relationship with Jesus, as we deepen our intimacy with him, what happens? You'll find that we become more culturally relevant because it is him that is guiding and developing our culture. And as we are culturally relevant, we become mutually accepting because the evidence and the appreciation of him accepting us is then outworked to each other. That's how we promote these three things, and that's how they are interdependent with one another. 
So, what church culture do you want to see in GCC? What church culture do you want to see in your home? How can we, with the Lord, make this church, make this home, make this family a home or a family or a church that promotes mutual acceptance, cultural relevance, and doctrinal purity? To quote the leaders, love and authenticity, vulnerability, honesty, no need for saving face. It's, it's of note that that culture of community that I grew up in, that little cul-de-sac in West Auckland, that my parents made the effort to open themselves up to others and others made themselves open and vulnerable as well. It is how friendships are developed. It is how friendships are made. But because I got to witness that being done by my parents, then I too learned how to do that. So that's where it starts. It starts with this vulnerability, this honesty, this no need for saving face, this mutual acceptance where people can feel understood, feel included, feel heard. And here's the kicker, not feel judged, even if one doesn't agree with something or don't understand things in the same way, but to make sure that there are situations that don't compromise the word. It's a culture where we can seek to understand the heart of others, even if we don't agree with them, so we can guide or, and we can walk alongside others toward Christ. A culture of seeing how God sees that person. A culture that breaks down barriers, age or gender, distance, geography, whatever it might be. A culture that teaches the word without diluting it to avoid conflict or upsetting others. Here's one thing for you. I like, this is what leaders wrote, and I agree wholeheartedly. People coming to church on time. People being respectful of time of others. A culture of love that goes beyond the four walls. But how do we do it? That starts, going back to those questions I asked you earlier on, is this what you want to see develop? Is this what you want to see grow? Is this a culture that really does promote mutual acceptance and cultural relevance and doctrinal purity? Is this a culture that you want to see happen? Well, if that's the case, then by the power of spirit, through prayer, modeling this culture in our homes, modeling this culture as, as leaders, multiple, uh, multiple, uh, this culture in our, relation, as in our relationships, then it starts with us. It's, it, I'm, I'm sorry. I, have, I don't have any, any like magic words or anything like that. There's no such thing. It's like, okay, as simple as this. Let's make that choice. Let's just, okay, let's do it. Let's seek to promote this culture, a culture that has the aroma of heaven that looks to glorify God, that looks to welcome people in, that looks to build people up. Well, that starts with a choice that you and I make right here and right now. For the glory of God the Father, that truly this church would be a church culture that the world wants to be a part of. And so with that, brothers and sisters, I leave that in your hands. I pray that we make some right choices 
and developing a culture that brings God glory. So if you'd like to bow your heads with me, we'll pray and we'll commit the rest of the day to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the culture that you have developed and the culture that you have set the example for in the person of Jesus Christ. I pray now that as your people, we would submit to your will, we would submit to your call, we will submit to your desires, and that as a church, we will have a culture that gives off the aroma of your spirit, that we will have a culture that truly is accepting of others, that truly is relevant to all people, and that truly is doctrinally pure, bringing glory to your name. I ask, Father, that these challenges you've laid before us will not soon be forgotten but rather lived by adhered to and submitted willingly to as well so we commit ourselves to you now lord develop us into a culture into a church that truly will bring glory to your name as romans chapter 15 verse 7 says that we will accept one another then just as Christ accepted us in order to bring praise to your name. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.